Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Inside Diaspora Studios Presents Stories. Today on the show, I'm joined with Chris Robson, a game developer who's got ADHD, but also his wife and kids have ASD. So we, I get to talk to him about what it's like to be a game developer with ADHD and what kind of challenges he has. And we get to hear some great stories and get to hear about his game he's working on called The Wiki. So sit back, relax, and grab your favorite beverage, and I'll catch you on the other side. See you there. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Inside the Asperger's Studios Presents Stories. Today, I'm joined with Chris Robson. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, how you doing, Reed? I'm just fine. So why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, no problem at all. So uh, as you say, my name is Chris Robson, and I am an independent video game developer. Um, I'm also a consultant for Epic Games, and I also teach people what's known as hard surface modeling or i used to i don't do that so much anymore um and in addition to that um i also have pretty bad adhd um and i'm married to my wife amanda who has autism and we have three autistic children and one child with adhd so we've got quite a quite a core kind of family in this kind of respect and um obviously as I've been developing my video game, The Wiki, which is what I'm working on now, um, I've been having to deal with the kind of problems that most people that have ADHD at my level have been dealing with. And it's been quite an exciting journey. So I'm looking forward to obviously discussing some of the problems I may have had and how I got over them. And hopefully it might be a way of um, giving some information to your listeners, that ways to get over this, because I found it a fascinating, fascinating journey so far. And I've still got quite a way left to go. All right, so do you remember what was your first game you have ever played? Well, the first video game I ever played, that's a very good question. Um, I had a friend of mine, this is years and years ago. Now, this may not mean a lot to um, my American friends, but um, in the UK, we had a computer called the ZX Spectrum, and I had a friend of mine whose father was quite well off, and he had a ZX Spectrum with, I think it was a game called Manic Miner. No, no. Yes, it was. It was Manic Miner. And this was a traditionally British kind of video game, very zany, very strange. I think this was about 1982, maybe maybe 1983. So really basic sprite stuff. And I remember just being blown away because I'm quite colorblind and the bright, vivid colors, even though there was only eight of them, it was like so bright and so cool. And the thing is, video games back then as well, unlike now where, you know, you get a video game and you expect 50 hours of gameplay, Back then, it was very much you got kind of 10 minutes of gameplay. Then you got killed. Then you got the same 10 minutes again. And then you got <laughs> killed. You did it again and again. And you had three lives. And it was like rinse and repeat. So for eight people with ADHD or, you know, ASD or whatever, to be honest, it was great. You know, I love this kind of gameplay. But I really, I really remember these early British games. And then after that, I remember... Um, 
we started getting some of the American imports in um, from US Gold, which was kind of a British company that used to bring games across. And we started getting games like there were sports games that I'd never seen before, like running games and stuff like that that were crazy. And we started getting games with car chases in and Spy Hunter. And it was a really exciting time, actually, because, you know, there was a lot of people into video games and creating them. And it was kind of a time where indie game development was really at its peak, certainly in England. Um, I was too young, really, to get on board with that. But I had a friend who worked with a guy called Jeff Minter from Llamasoft. And um, he used to let me see his home development studio where he had, like, great big computers and screens and stuff. And he was working on, I think, a bit of nostalgia for some of the viewers, uh, listeners there. Um, he was working on Mr. Do, of all things, which is a really old arcade machine. And he was converting that to the Commodore 64, and he was kind of showing me what he was doing, and it was crazy. And I remember thinking back then, I'd love to do this, but unfortunately, I'm fairly dyslexic. And with my ADHD, I'm not really heavily dyslexic, but I'm dyslexic enough that combined with my ADHD, I find a real problem in picking up coding. And in kind of the assembly that needed to be done then just was far too much for me. And so for a long time, I kind of thought, well, I'll never be able to develop video games, unfortunately. It's just outside of what I can do. And so basically, I just got on with doing what I was doing, which was I tried to become an architect. But being colorblind, being an architect in the UK wasn't possible. So I just went into a, a fairly boring office job until I was kind of in my mid-20s. But anyway, I'm getting off the beaten track. Fairly typical for me. Um but for video games after that, I mean, there was a big change in what happened with video games. Um, basically, the British video game industry died in the mid-80s. And then eventually we got the consoles that came in in the 1990s to kind of revitalize things. And we also got the Amiga and we got the Atari ST. And at that point, I had, an, I had the Amiga and I had a game called Elite Frontier by David Braun of Frontier Software, which was a fantastic kind of open world game where you had a spaceship and you went off exploring and you could trade or you could like hunt down pirates and stuff. And it was, for me, a pivotal moment because it was such a beautiful kind of game. And it was really, I don't know, full 3D. And this, I realized that's kind of what I wanted to do. Um, and then after that, gosh, I just kept playing games like that, to be quite honest, Reed. But for my first games, definitely, I would say Matthew Smith's Manic Miner was almost certainly one of them. And uh, yeah, I remember that game very fondly. If any of your um, listeners or viewers want to have a look at that one, you can probably find it on archive.org and actually have a play on it yourself because it's a very, very good game. All right. What game do you remember? What game got you into becoming a game developer? Elite, funnily enough, of all things. Now, I mentioned briefly Elite by um, David Brabham, um, but the game I was talking about on the Amiga was actually the second game. The first game was made, I think, in 83 or 84. And this, again, was a British game developer. And he made this game using vector graphics, these really clean, straight edges for spaceships and Everything was geometry, and it was really, really simple. And I remember being blown away by it. My friends at school and myself, we used to compete with each other to be the best pilot, and we'd bring in our scores, and you know, we'd tell each other lies about all the secret missions we didn't really find and all the things kids <laughs> do. Fantastic fun, you know? Um, but 
that was kind of that was the thing that I saw and I started keeping little diaries and designing little ships myself and imagining that I'd be able to kind of do this. And this is kind of the same time I realized that coding was really, really hard. And I certainly couldn't understand assembly well enough to do this, unfortunately. But it didn't stop me from designing. That was kind of the first point where I started designing things in 3D, just on paper, because I didn't have a computer that could do it. I didn't know how to do it on computers. So I'd get graph paper and I'd start drawing things and making these geometric shapes and just imagining what these things would look like, which later on would obviously come back and be useful when I started doing actual 3D back in 2000, well, 1999, when I started doing 3D itself using proper 3D software. I guess you you would use something like Maya? Sort of. Um, I started with 3D Studio Max, actually, um, mm. simply because it became available. I wanted to use Maya, and actually um, I had a chance to use it, but I couldn't. I found that I got the hang of 3D Studio Max faster than I got the hang of Maya. So I started using that, and I basically carried across what I was already enjoying, which was spaceships, robots, spaceships, robots. And I did that for quite a long time. I had this website called 3d palace um it's still there but it doesn't really do much and we had about 125,000 people using the website at its peak and i was teaching people how to make robots in 3d and teach them how to do animation and it was a really really cool time it was a good time to be doing 3d because it was very new and very exciting i still wanted to do programming and game development even then i mean we're talking between 1999 and 20 sorry, 2012, I'd say. But again, because at that point, you could only code using C++ mm. or assembly. For me, it was kind of out of out of my reach. I'd done courses in C++, but for people who, you know, see things the way I see things, the words just become a jumble and a mess, impossible for me to understand. Mm-hmm. And it was really frustrating because when you want to do something and you can't, you know, it really is very, very frustrating. So I stuck being I stuck with um, doing that for quite a while to 3D, and then eventually I got this kind of oh there's a beta for Unreal Engine coming out, and I had a friend mm-hmm. who was developing a game in a mod team, and I was like that sounds amazing. I'd love to use Unreal Engine. I always wanted to, and so Epic Games sent me a license um, for the pre-release of Unreal Engine Four, and I started using it and. The thing about that is you don't have to code. It uses mm-hmm. kind of graphs, you know, with nodes leading off to other graphs. It's like, I understand this. This is amazing. And that was just literally my point where I moved on, you know. Again, stop me if I ramble because I do ramble. No, no, no. It's very interesting. <laughs> you know, I mean, you sound like me because my father, <laughs> rest his soul now, he knew programming. I didn't. He he wanted yeah. me to learn programming, and it's like I, my mind couldn't understand the logic. But you yeah, put a, yeah, no, with my ADHD and my ASD. But you throw <laughs> a graphical interface programming language in front of me where you can just click and drag, where each piece yeah. represents a different, like a for or a loop or a callback or any of those. Yeah, and you it's explain what each thing yeah. does and how they do it. <laughs> like like the programming language scratch to learn programming that's exactly what it's like yeah i was you i was learning that and it made things like oh this does that it made it so simplistic because i didn't have to worry 
because I didn't have to worry about the whole behind the scenes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's exactly what it was with me. I mean, at first I was, I was nervous, you know, because I started using this and I'd already been a 3D artist and I'd seen that, to be honest, everything I'd worked for for about 10 years, the 3D industry itself on what I was working on kind of went down and it stopped and there was nothing for me to do and I felt kind of used to it. And then this came along and it's like uh, I had that nervous feeling, you know, because it seemed a bit too good to be true, coupled with maybe I can do something, you know, and it's always a fight with ourselves. We're always fighting ourselves to say we can do this, we can do this. And I'm very lucky because my wife's a very positive person. She very much kind of pushes me out of my comfort zone. And I resisted for a long time using this blueprint system, it's called Unreal Engine. And then one day I started using it and it was like, this makes sense. I understand this. And then after a while, um, my wife suggested, you know, because I used to train people in using 3D Studio Max and stuff. She said, why don't you um, take the examiner's exam um, with Epic? And I was nervous. I thought, oh, I'm going to fail this. And she was like, no, 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 do it, do it, do it. So I took the examination and I passed it. And then literally the next day, someone got in touch. He was like, um, Epic wants to know if you could train some people to use Unreal Engine because wow. I'm, I'm fairly personable, so I can kind of get away with it. And um, that's exactly what happened. And then I started, develop I've been developing software for them and I've been teaching people. I've taught all sorts of people all over the world and I get to develop a game. And it's wonderful because partly because I can, I prove to myself, yes, I can code, even if I'm not typing lines. And at the same time, I've also proven to myself that I can pick up new skills, even though I'm now 50. And I think that was the most important thing for me because I felt so much in my mid thirties, you know, when things started slowing down and crashing down, I've already done my stuff. I can't possibly pick up new skills and you can, you can pick up new skills at any time. And it's a wonderful thing being able to do that. It's hard, but the feeling of self-reward is just so nice when you can do this sort of thing. Even if you're not going to make a massive success of yourself, just learning one new thing is so wonderful. I know. I mean, when I, me and my friends started taking these like programming classes, we took like a Python three Python class together because it oh, was nice. supposed to, it was supposed to be a simplistic course. He got it. I, I somewhat understood it. And then we took scratch together and I understood that a lot better because it was simplistic. It was graphical. Everything was like drag and click and then boom, run. To be honest, you'd probably really enjoy the um, blueprint system inside of Unreal Engine because it is, it's just like Scratch. It's incredibly, incredibly versatile. And if you like video games, then it's a really good, fun, easy way of learning video games. I'd recommend it to anyone who has had problems, certainly with kind of looking at code and it just becoming a jumbly mess because it's, it's just nice. You know, it's so organized. It's like using graph paper back when I was a kid again, and it feels comfortable and nice, you know? It's yeah, a strange I, thing to say. Mm. Yeah, go on. No, no, I was just saying it's a strange thing to say, but obviously it does. It feels that kind of, I don't know, it feels like something that you can do, whereas when I look at code, it's like it feels harsh and sharp-edged mm -hmm. by comparison, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah, it feels like a strange language to you. Yeah, it does. It does. I mean, I'm, I've always had problems with languages because, I mean, half my family's French, and I have great difficulty picking up French language written. I can speak some when people conversation with me, but I can't read it very well. It's the same sort of thing. 
Hang on a second. What? Yeah, I mean, um, my show. <laughs> my show. Yeah, I mean, I had that same thing. I mean, I, I look at when I look at code, mm. it's all gibberish to me. Yeah, my dad's like, much. "Why couldn't you understand this?" And I'm like, "I don't understand it." And to give yeah. you an idea, when I went into my for my bachelor's, even I had to take for my IT course, I had to take Java. Oh, I scraped by with a D. Well done, that. To be honest, it's hard. I couldn't it's understand. Hard. It was so hard. I mean, I literally had to beg the teacher to listen. I don't want to fail this course. Can you at least give me a D? Because I squeaked. <laughs> I I had trouble understanding, and she's like, "I can do what I can do." Yeah. And then for my masters, with I had to take Java all over again. I'm like, "Oh God, oh, no. no!" Oh, that and I literally. I remember sitting in the class and we had our graduate students helping everyone. And I remember her going to everyone and going, can you explain to me what's going on? And I remember listening to the kid next to me and then taking, saying what he said, but changing it to make it sound like something I was doing. (laughs) So I kind of scraped by on that. Hey, that works. If it works, it worked you know, for me because they, they she was happy. Well, there you go. If it works, it works. Can't but Java is a tough language. Oh, it is. It is. One of the things that's um, been an interesting challenge for me, actually, and this is where having Amanda to help me has been massively, massively useful, is making a video game. Obviously, I've talked about kind of early 1980s video games and will have seen them, the kind of things you find on phones, you know, walk the little man from the left side of the screen to the right hand side of the screen. To be fair, I mean, no disrespect to people who make those kind of games, but that's fairly easy to do with a modern game engine. But when I started making this video game, what I'm doing now with the wiki, which is kind of this game about becoming a lighthouse keeper in 1936 in Scotland, um, What I'm doing with this was originally it was just going to be a rowing boat simulation because I wanted (laughs) to simulate a rowing boat going through the water. And then I made an island for him to land on. And I was like, I've just seen the film The Lighthouse. Um, And I was like, well, it'd be really cool to kind of build a period kind of lighthouse game. So I was like, well, I'll make it open world. And the thing about this is, you know, I can do open world. I can build an open world. But... It's only when you start doing it, you realize what a colossal amount of work that actually is. I mean, it's ridiculous. We've been talking about coding and how difficult it is to code. And the code, you know, once you get used to it, great. Code takes a bit of getting used to. But behind the code, obviously, I need what are known as assets. And an asset can be anything. An asset can be a knife. It can be a telephone. It can be a chair. So if we imagine that I've got an island that's four kilometers long with a village and a load of buildings, I've got to build the island, I've got to build the grass, I've got to build the trees, I've got to build the water, I've got to build the houses, I've got to build the insides of the houses, I've got to build the furniture, I've got to build the lights that go inside the houses, and I've got to build dust that settles on top of the furniture. And it just goes on and on and on. And it's such a massively overwhelming project. I mean, I've been working on it now for three years with the plan that it's 
going to come out um, at Christmas time. And I was talking to a friend of mine um, who works for another video game development company, because if you work as an indie game developer, you'll meet a lot of other game developers. You know, it's a great way to meet other people. And he was like, um, are you still working on the wiki? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I am. He's like, I was talking to my friends at the studio and they're like, we don't understand how you can keep doing it. And I'm like, well, you know, it's like a hobby to me. I'm enjoying it. So I'm, I keep it going. And he said, like, we talked and we said, like, the minimum number of people usually to make an open world game, you're talking about 20 to 50 people for the average open world game. And you're kind of doing it on your own. How are you managing to do it? And it's, well, I'm not trying to show off here by saying, oh, I'm doing it because I'm a genius. Oh, I'm doing it because I'm really clever. No. What it is, is modern video game engines now are so good mm -hmm. that once you're used to doing a little bit of 3D, you can make anything. <clears throat> and as long as you've got some imagination, as long as you've got someone, in my case, you know, telling me, you can do it, Chris, you know, go for it, mm -hmm. you can do this, which is a massive help. You can do these things. And I mean, this is something that I'm really, I like to talk about, is that certainly for people who have ADHD, certainly for people that have ASD, certainly for people who have, you know, any form of problem where they think they can't do something, you can. It might take you longer. You might get frustrated. But it's in those frustrations along the way, I think, that we learn how to do things and learn how to improve, like your fight with Java, for example, like my fight with um, the coding system back in Unreal Engine 3, which I couldn't use. It's, it's these kind of fights that make us want to persevere and want to try harder so that we can produce something nice in the end. And, I mean, for me, when I'm done, you know, with the wiki, which I'm, I don't think I'll ever be done with it because I'm enjoying it, so I'm always going to be adding to it. But when it comes out, you know, even if only one person plays it and likes it, it's fine by me because it's really about making something to prove that I can do something and making me feel that because for anyone who's 50 like me or round about my age, you know, especially in England, when we were younger, we get told, oh, you're stupid because you don't understand such and such. You know, we're not stupid. It's just we don't take things in the same way. And so it's important to understand your own skills and say to yourself, well, I can do it. I just need to do it a different way. And I think, you know, I think that's something that took me a long time to learn. So what are some of the challenges you had to deal with with your ADHD in writing? Organization. Organization is number one for me because... I mean, especially working with something, you know, like a cutting edge video game engine, um, like Unreal Engine, which is free, so anyone can go and use it. The problem is, there's so many cool things. I mean, it's like being 10 years old inside of a toy shop, and you're told you can play with all the toys, you know, because you can. I could start doing something, and then I'd go, oh, no, I'm going to get distracted, and I'll start doing something else, because, you know, it's all there for you to mess around with. And it's very, very easy to get unfocused. Um, very, very easy indeed. And then you become overwhelmed and then you get depressed because you've done nothing. And then nothing gets done because you're too busy sitting there thinking, God, I'm a failure. Why am I not doing my work properly? And so what I did was last, last year, I'd started basically keeping logs, just written books, which took me a lot of getting used to. But I kept written books, just noting down everything I was doing when I was doing it and just starting to keep a basic kind of appointment schedule in it for myself to do my work, which I thought, why would I need it if it's just me? 
And then um, someone told me, well, have you tried bullet journaling? Mm -hmm. And I'd never heard of bullet journaling. So they told me about it. And um, after I'd listened to them, I was going home on the bus and I looked it up on the internet and I watched the videos about it on their website. And then I set myself up my first bullet journal. And it was like literally mental liberation. You know, I suddenly understood because the thing is, mobile phones seem like such a good idea and they are. But they're very, very bad for keeping information in, for organising my thoughts in. Whereas using something like, you know, I'm sure I've lost mine now somewhere, I put it down, oh, it's over there. Using something like a bullet journal, um, it means that I can adapt each page, I can make certain sections block outs for my notes, I can make block outs for what I'm teaching, I can make block outs for doing my food shopping. And, I mean, if you were to ask my wife, Amanda, she even she says, now I'll go to the supermarket and I'll actually bring back the stuff I'm supposed to bring back <laughs> rather than getting distracted and bring back, you know, a hundred cans of lemonade or something. <laughs> um, yeah. You know what it's like. So it's yeah. all about kind of the self-organization and bullet journals to me were such a surprise. And I introduced um, bullet journaling to my, to my son Zebedee and he's got the same kind of level of um, ADHD as I have. And he started using it and he's getting way more organized and he's getting ready to, move into his own house soon and all this kind of thing, which really he didn't have the kind of organizational skills to do. And these simple things, just a one page a day bullet journal for me has just changed things so much. It's crazy. I really didn't think it would work. I thought it was kind of that kind of flim flam you see in the self-help books that I never really kind of go for. So it was just such an eye opener for me. It really was. Now, if someone wanted to become a game developer, what would you recommend they look into first, graphical or C++? That's a very good question. To be quite honest, most people shouldn't do things the way I do them, okay? I'm doing them wrongly, to be fair, but doing things wrong, that's fine. You see, I came into this as a 3D artist originally because I'd wanted to be a coder, and then I became a coder through blueprints with a lot of 3D skills. What's better really is not to do it alone if you can help it certainly some of us work better on our own i know i'm one of those people but ideally if you want to get into video game development the best thing to do is find someone else who has a likewise way of thinking and that way one of you may want to do the artwork one of you might want to do sound one of you might want to do the coding and that way it's going to take less strain off you doing it on your own is absolutely fine too but if you're going to, the most important thing is realize that you're not, you may not get it right first time. We never do. I've got video games I made six, seven years ago that, you know, I never finished. They, I put them out for people to play as demos and they never really got finished, but they were fun at the time. Don't be afraid of doing something that you'll class as a failure because it's not a failure. It's how we learn from it. And my advice is, don't put it off. If you want to learn how to do something, there's no better time than now. You know, all the tools are there now that I could have only dreamed of 30 years ago. I can literally go to unrealengine.com and download a AAA game engine that's used in, I'd say, about 50% of the top video games out at the moment and use it completely for free. And if I need some 3D assets to use inside of it and I'm not good at doing that, I can download them free from the same place. So there's plenty there. And if you're thinking to yourself, oh, I'm a little bit nervous about how I'm going to learn, 
That's not a problem. There's literal devoted lessons on there for people of all ages just to get you up to speed. Couple that with, of course, if you ever have any form of confusion, you're more than welcome to just shoot me over an email at chris at 3dpalace.com. And I'm always happy to give advice to anyone who wants to try and get back into this or try and start getting into this sort of thing. Um, I... I personally mentor a few people just to try and get them up to speed with Unreal Engine. And, you know, this isn't something where I'm saying to people, give me handfuls of money. This is something <laughs> I see as, you know, I like doing this sort of thing to benefit people so that they can gain these new skills and feel good about themselves. Because why the hell shouldn't they? You know? So, yes, if you want to make a video game, if you want to do it 3D using the big budget engine, grab Unreal Engine, have a play with it. If you want to do something that's kind of a top-down RPG kind of game, grab Game Studio and use that. Just, you know, there's so many good tools out there. And if you're worried about things being expensive, just use the free software. It's not expensive. You can use Blender for nothing. You use, oh, let me think. You can use Unity for free, Unreal Engine for free. There's so much... You don't need Photoshop. You can use GIMP for free, and that's a really good piece of software too. So there's nothing stopping us except ourselves. And once you realize that you're the only person stopping yourself, then you'll go, oh, maybe I'll give it a try. And if you get stuck, there's people like me. There's lots of people around the world who will be happy to help you for free. Just point you in the right direction, send you a couple of links to get you going. And that's the whole point of it. So you really don't need C++. You can just go and go the graphical route and avoid all the whole background. Absolutely. I haven't done a single line of C++ in the whole of the wiki. And the wiki, I mean, in the game, you've got various different characters. We've got a full dialogue system, inventory system, quest system. You've got mm. five open world islands that you can explore. You can travel on ships, gondolas, all in fully rendered 3D. We've got weather systems, snow, rain, you name it not one line of C++ have I written. Because what happens is the system that this game engine uses, which, like you said, very similar to Scratch, it's all node-based, it converts it to C++ when it builds. I never see a single line of C++. It just makes an executable. Job done. Very quick, sure. very easy. So what made you want to write your game? A couple of things. So... Like I said, I um, I'd started making a rowing boat simulation because I thought it'd be cool inside of Unreal Engine making this rowing boat simulation. And I'm a massive fan of H.P. Lovecraft, who I think is a mm. great author, a flawed person, but a great author. And I'm a big fan of Hodgson, who was, um, uh, he came before Lovecraft. He's an Irish writer. Very, very similar, though. So... After I'd seen the film The Lighthouse, which has Willem Dafoe in it and that chap from uh, Twilight, I was kind of, well, I'd like to make a game that kind of pulls in the existential dread of Lovecraft and Hodgson, while at the same time bringing in this whole kind of, you are isolated on an island, what could possibly happen? And there aren't really any games like that. I always used to like classic adventure games. Um, I don't know if you remember these, like Zork and things like that. Oh, my you God. You just had to type in using text passes. Yeah, exactly. You remember Chris, them. Chris, I'm your age. I'm 50. Yeah, I'm 51. So, yeah. I, you, look younger, I, you look younger than me, for heaven's sakes, really. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, if you're the second person to tell me that, but <laughs> I grew up with an Apple computer and an Apple II okay. and the first yeah. IBM, and I remember Zork. 
and typing and run and having the thing go, what do you want me to run? run how where? fast do you think I can run? Exactly. And that the was it. little lines that it comes up with. So much fun, though, wasn't it? That was the whole point. And my view was that the kind of game that I like <laughs> is that kind of game, the kind of game where I wonder what's through there, I wonder what's over there. I love that kind of adventure where you're exploring and finding things. And so for me, it was just a case of I wanted to make something I wanted to play with. I wanted, I wanted the chance to make something where I could explore and just have fun and go crazy, you know. But at the same time, I set myself this goal of keeping it in 1936 and keeping the technology at that level and keeping everything at that level so that I would rein myself in because it's all too easy to kind of go, ah, science fiction, all this kind of <clears> thing, <throat> and start spoiling it. And then another thing I did as well on top of that, which probably was a mistake, was I said to myself, will minimize any chance of combat because most modern games now, they dump you in with a machine gun and off you go, you know? And I didn't really want to do that because I always thought that a good horror game gets kind of reduced if you've got a gun. It's like, ah, oh, monster, bang, 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 monster's gone. So in the Lovecraftian world and the Hodgson world and the Matron world and Edgar Allan Poe's world, you know, real-world weapons don't really do that much at all to this kind of existential monster. And so I thought, well, I'll just reduce that and I'll make a game where combat means nothing. You know, you can get killed really easily because we're just squashy bags of meat. But, you know, the average real monster, we wouldn't stand a chance against. And so it's all going to become psychological. That's where the difficulty in my game comes from, because if I'd made a game where I was just shooting waves of zombies, I'd have finished two years ago. Mm -hmm. The complexity of building something where you're trying to build a sense of dread is so hard. It is so hard. It's fun, though, but it is difficult. I mean, you and I are on the same wavelength in the, in the respect of game-wise is because I don't prefer games like COD and Warfare and all that. I prefer story-rich games because someone with ADHD, a story-rich game draws you in, keeps you drawn because you're always guessing what's going to happen. Well, that's it. That's the whole point. I, uh, that's what I love about it, you know? I mean, when I built um, the demo and the demo it's not great. The demo has a lot of bugs. I had to rush it out, unfortunately. But if you play the demo of the wiki, um, there's quite a lot of secret stuff in there that people haven't found. And the whole point is because people just think the demo inside the game, you arrive at this island that's got this big old gondola on it that's going to take you to the main island. And so you come onto the island and you talk to people and they say, oh, you've got to take the gondola to the main island. You get on the gondola, it takes you to the main island, the introduction's over. But then I liked the idea of, well, there must be more ways to get to the island than that. And of course there is, you know. So the first thing I thought is, well, what if you get back on the ship that brought you here? You know, what if you decide to go home? What if you decide you don't want to be a lighthouse keeper anymore? No, so I built on the functionality where you can get back on the ship and go back to Scotland. And what will happen if that happens? So I had great fun with that. And then I was like, well... What happens if you don't want to go in the gondola? Can I find a different way there? Well, yeah, let's try a fishing boat. So you can find a fishing boat and you can take a small fishing boat, which takes ages to get to the <laughs> island in real time. Hilariously slow. But I loved it because it goes past all these weird rocks and things floating in the sea and it's crazy. And then I was like, well, what if you get there really, really fast? And so 
I introduce this character who's an archaeologist who's been doing digging. And there's like this weird dig that you can find if you follow all the clues just on the Gondor Island. And then you find this weird gate that takes you straight through to the island. A uh, bit detrimental doing it that way, but you can do it that way. And then I was like, what else can we do? Could you swim all the way there? Of course you can. Why not? You'll get caught and die if you're not careful. But sure, we'll give that a go. And it just gets silly because what happens is I'll start doing something and I'll be like, well, I've done it that way. Let's do it a different way. And I just love seeing how many different ways you can do things just to make it more fun, you know? I mean, sure, some people are just going to play it as fast as possible. You know, people are always going to do that. They're going to run into the mice trap and grab the cheese. But there's always going to be people as well who are like, I wonder what's over there. Did he actually put anything in there behind that door? Yeah, (laughs) it's everywhere. That's the whole point. Things to find is what I love. Oh, yeah. I mean, games like that that just make you think, hmm, what if I do this? Or what if I do that? And what I like is, because I'm keeping this live, um, the idea with this is, you know, once it comes out, it stays live because I like the idea of being able to update it continually. So if someone then goes, you know, oh, I went to go and have a look behind such and such to see what was there, and I couldn't find anything, next patch, there'll be something there. (laughs) I'm going to keep going that way. You know, my idea is, you know, if people are going to make up, yeah, I'll put it in. I'll have a great time doing that. That'll be fun. So what kind of great stories can you share with us? Which kind? Fun, horror, any kind. Oh, my favorite horror stories. Goodness me. Well, funnily enough, um, I mean, I play Call of Cthulhu role play game, which is great fun. Um, I've just been watching The Ninth Gate, which is an old Johnny Depp film from about mm, 2001, I think it is. And that is such a good film because... It works, again, on the kind of Lovecraftian idea of a building of existential dread, which works perfectly. It's very worth seeing if you've never seen it. And then to kind of counter that, I've al- I also watch, um, I don't know about you, but I watch things loads as well, over and over again, because I love this kind of thing. I watch um, John Carpenter's Mouth of Madness, which is the silliest, best horror film in the world. It's like a total popcorn movie really really silly it's um a parody of kind of Stephen king and stuff it's not supposed to be a comedy but god it is so damn funny so i play those and then obviously i still play the classic video games like silent hill one and two and four which is a very very good game indeed but um for people of my age and your age um, I also like some of the classic games going back. So, I mean, there's Alone in the Dark, which is a fantastic title. Oh my God! You're, you're oh, bringing yeah. me back to my you're bringing me yeah. back to my old days and where you have that those. little tiny book and you have to find the code. Yeah, I mean, it, man, that was great. It reminds me uh, of games like Where in the World Was Carmen Sandiego, where the copy was protection was the encyclopedia, and That's they go, right. you have it to find. SSI Games did the same um, when they did the Gold Box series of Games for Dungeons and Dragons. And that's a great series to go back to. I think they've just been released on Steam. Um, they used to give you a little book that was like your adventurer's journal. And you'd have to look at entry such and such, and that would tell you where mm-hmm. you were going next. And it was brilliant. I used to love those. I mean, at the moment, um, something I'm kind of working on just as a side hobby, again, with the wiki, is I've started making decks of cards 
built with kind of some of these designs that go into the wiki. And I'm going to try and put the deck of cards inside the game. And then I'm also going to try and make a deck of cards that people can like play themselves. And with the deck of cards that people play themselves, I like the idea that there's going to be clues hidden inside images so that people can find other things inside the game they wouldn't be able to find normally. Because I just love this kind of game within a game kind of they call it a metaverse nowadays which is mm-hmm. terrible for it. but i just like the game within a game you know everything connects together i think it's wonderful i don't know if you had this in um the us or not you may have heard of it when you were over here yourself but we had a book that was really popular over here certainly in the 1980s called masquerade by a guy called kit williams um, I really recommend your your watchers and listeners kind of having a look for it on um, Google. And it was a book, and every single page had kind of a poem and then a big picture that was a puzzle. And mm-hmm. the idea was that when you solved it, it gave you the coordinates to where a solid gold rabbit had been buried. Yeah. We had and my mom a- has had that book. It's such the a good was great. Book. You have to find an image within each picture and, each, and then great. at the end, it led you to a secret location somewhere in, within the world to find this They're so rabbit. good. They're so good, these kind of books. And that's kind of, that's what I like. And this is why, you know, for me, it's such an adventure to mix these kind of ideas together and build this kind of... As you, as you know, it's all about exploration, about finding, about adventure, about story, and just kind of layering these things on top of each other. And I can't guarantee it's going to work, you know, but that's what I'm aiming at myself. And I kind of hope it does, because it's so much fun. What is your feeling about, like, games like the Ultimate Reality games, where they mix real life within the game? I remember EA had a game way back when called Majestic, and I played that. Oh, Majestic. And I love that. I love the game to a point because it blended reality within itself. And you didn't realize some of these people you were talking to were actors playing art. And you just felt like you were drawn into this game. It could have been so much more than it was. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, at the minute, technology is in a very, very strange place, to be quite honest, Reed. Um, I mean, you've almost certainly heard of things like GPT-3, which is the artificial intelligence systems. Um, anyone nowadays can access, um, you know, GPT-3 or these really good artificial intelligence software systems. And now there's a real push to try and get them kind of working with video games. Because if I could leverage something like GPT-3 or if I could leverage something like um, the one that Amazon uses, which I've forgotten the name of, or the one Microsoft's got, think about it. But I could have an AI in the game that you're talking to with fully dynamic conversation. All I'd need to do is set him a basic kind of personality, as it were, that's driving him. And mm-hmm. then we have a completely AI-led conversation. And I can see this is where we're going to end up. We're going to end up at a position not too far from now where AIs are doing a lot of the work for creating video games, for creating dialogues and so on. And I don't see that as a scary thing. I certainly see that as something that I'd like to understand better because I'd like to certainly try and leverage it as an individual indie game developer, though, because I think it'd be fascinating. Yeah. Now, do you have any great stories you can share about when you worked with some of these big name uh, <laughs> companies, like funny stories to share? Oh, well, funny stories are always a killer, actually. 
Um, let me have a think. Let me have a think. Well, actually, yeah, because I, I, I have done quite a lot of, um, I have done quite a lot of talks around the place. The problem is, obviously, I don't want to be too specific for companies because I don't want anyone getting into trouble. But there, there was, there was a great one. There was this, there was this video game company one time in, um, that came over to a conference that I was at, and they'd sent one of their kind of lead programmers across. And the video game itself, it wasn't GTA or anything like that. But it was one of those games where, you know, you're playing a criminal and you're acting like a gangster. And it was, it was pretty highly rated at the time. I'm not going to go into any more details than that. But the thing is, the guy, it must have been the first time he'd ever been away from home, you know, away from his wife and away from like his studio and stuff. He was over in the UK from America. And um, I remember he came, he, he just... <laughs> He was comporting himself constantly like he was kind of this gangster character, <laughs> which we know he wasn't because, you know, I've got him on my Facebook and he is exactly the opposite of that. And um, I remember in the end, he got kind of turfed out of his hotel room because he brought back a great big crowd of women and arranged a poker night in his hotel room when he was supposed to be doing this conference the next day. And there was about 50 or 60 people there all up in his room, all trying to have this poker night. And they were calling the police because they had all these people turned up in this hotel. And the next day when he came down, he had this horrible hangover. And we were like, are you trying to live in your video game or something? <laughs> because you're a programmer. You're not supposed to be having these crazy poker nights up in your room. And it was just so damn silly. I mean, the thing is, most of most of the stories um, when it comes down to, I mean, us programmers are very, very boring kind of individuals. Us game developers are boring folks because we spend most of our time inside, you know, hiding from the sun and all this kind of thing. But we do tend to have these kind of get-togethers. Um, there's some really good ones, like there's one at uh, Utrecht in the Netherlands, which is called End User Event, where everyone kind of gets together and all the professionals can talk and people learn and stuff. And I was doing End User Event one time, and I was doing a talk on animation, um, mechanical animation, and I was doing a talk in front of all these industry experts um so i was like great not a problem i could do that so the first night comes and we're sitting at the bar and i haven't taught yet i'm teaching the next day so we're sat at the bar in this place and it's called the florin it's beautiful and um i haven't bought many drinks because i didn't have much money at the time and so i didn't want to spend a lot of money on drinks so the guy who was running the event comes over and uh, he's a good friend of mine now. And he was like, Chris, uh, Chris, why are you not drinking? And I'm like, um, oh, well, I don't have much money. I don't want to waste all my money on drink. He's like, oh, you're a speaker here. All the drinks for you are free. Didn't you know that? I was like, what? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, everything's free for you. You know, you're a speaker. All the speakers get the drinks for free. I was like, really? So I got up. I was there with Amanda. We'd both gone. And um, so I got up and I went to see the barman. And I was like, um, excuse me, I've just been told all the drinks for the night are free because I'm a speaker and I didn't realise. Um, and I'm not exactly sure what to do. And the man went, without dropping a beat, because, you know, Dutch are fantastic people, he went, one moment, <laughs> go and shit down, I'll shut you out. So I went and sat down and he brought over a tray that had six pint glasses of left triple on it, which is a very <laughs> strong Dutch beer. He said, this will get you started. So night went off in a blur at that point. So I vaguely remember um, I was out with some of the guys who worked on, uh, is it Alan Waite? 
yeah, Wake. Alan Wake. Sorry, Alan Wake. Oh. I was out with some of the guys who worked on Alan, Alan Wake. I was out with some of the guys from Autodesk. Um, I was out with a couple of guys who were on the Modbox team, and I can't remember who else. And we were all in some horrible little nightclub at two in the morning. None of us had a clue how we got there. Trying to organise an impromptu karaoke. So two o'clock comes, and we're turfed out of there because... They didn't want us there, really. It closed about an hour previously. I realised we'd forgotten Amanda's bag. So we're all rushing back, trying to... <laughs> because we're drunk, we're trying to kind of kick the door open to get Amanda's bag back. Will you go away? So we eventually get Amanda's bag back. And so we all go to this takeaway, this horrible little takeaway, and we're all eating, like, Dutch kebabs, which are amazingly good. And then one of my friends leans over to me, and it's about 3.30 in the morning, and I'm covered in kebab meat. And he goes, um... Don't you, don't, don't you have a lecture at 10 o'clock in the morning? And like, my eyes are like this. And I'm like, I do? I thought it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It's like, no, 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 it's rescheduled. You got it at 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> so they have to escort me back to my hotel. The next morning I wake up and it's like, I get up at 9 o'clock, I have a bit of a lion, and I go across to the venue and I must have looked like someone's, someone's scarecrow they jugged out of a hedge. And I get there... And I'm like, oh, I've got to talk at 10 o'clock. I'm really sorry. I'm still a little bit hungover. And like, everyone's laughing at me. They're like, ah, it wasn't really 10 o'clock. It's 2 o'clock. And so everyone's <laughs> laughing at me. And I'm just dying. I'm completely white, you know, <laughs> still smelling bad meat. So I was able to go back to my hotel and have a couple more hours. And then I came for this lecture at 2 o'clock. And I did this talk for like two hours about animating robots. Which <laughs> went absolutely great, to be quite honest. But... um. To be honest, most of the stories involving, you know, game developers meeting up and stuff tend to tend to revolve around that sort of thing. I don't actually drink much at all anymore, thank God. I think I'd have died. So at the time, it seemed like a good idea, if you know what I mean. But that's the thing. I mean, if you get into doing this kind of thing, you meet such crazy people. I mean, there was this one time, um, Middlesbrough, they have this big animation festival in Middlesbrough. Um, which is about 26 miles south of here. And we had, um, oh, goodness me, not Phil Tippett. Harry Harrison, that's it. Uh, Harry, ha- Harry Housen, that's it. Um, the guy who did the stop motion animation, um, Ray Harry Housen. Um, he was there. Great big Texan dude. And um, anyway, his foot arrived late. So Everyone was in um, the main building, you know, and they'd had their dinner and everyone was having drinks quietly. And then all we can hear downstairs, there's this smashing sound. I'm like, hmm. I'm like what the heck's that? And there's this kick and all we can hear is this broad Texan accent. Well, someone opened the goddamn door. Just sound. And they get down there and there's Ray Harryhausen with this battered old suitcase. And we're like, um, they're like, um, oh, we didn't realise you were here. You know, why didn't you phone ahead? And his phone didn't have, it turned out his phone didn't work in England. So they get him in, and he's got this big, dirty suitcase. He goes, I thought I'd never get here. And he opens his suitcase. It's filled with all of the skeletons from um, oh, Jason and the Argonauts movies. You know, all of the, yeah. all of the articulated skeletons. And we're just standing around like this. It's such a moment when you're kind of surrounded by this amazing memorabilia. We had the same thing as well with, um, you know, Wallace and Gromit. Yeah, the English cartoon, yeah. yeah. That's it, Nick Park Animations, I think it is. And um, I was I was um, at this conference one time and I was back in the green room and uh, this guy came in who I knew and he was like, um, do you want to see something cool? And I was like, yeah, yeah, sure, what have you got? 
and he opened this box and I can't remember what that ship's called. We did a, sh- a film recently about pirates or something and they had like the full pirate, the stop motion pirate from the movie in the box and they pulled it out and they said, here, you can see what you think, move its fingers and stuff. And it was crazy. Like the detail that goes into these things, man, it was so, so good. But that's the thing, you know, if you go to these kind of events, you tend to... It's not like when you go to the events and there's kind of actors there signing their autographs and stuff and you're paying 50 bucks to, like, stand in a photograph with some wrestler. When you go to these events where it's artists and game developers, you're literally standing next to them, just chatting to them. So you get to chat to such an amazing group of people you'd normally kind of not move in the same circles as. And for me, it's great because, you know, I've got to meet people from Pixar, because, you know, Pixar regularly send their guys over here and we got to see them when they were doing Finding Nemo and then Finding Dory and they did talks about all the cool things they've been doing. And it's amazing. And then we got to meet the guys from Volition Software and they were fascinated. And we got to meet the guys from, oh God, it was that new alien film. And he was showing me the spaceship in the new, in the Prometheus. And they were showing us how they made the spaceship come down in Prometheus. And I'm a giant nerd for spaceships. And seeing that was just crazy fun, you know? But that's what it's about. It's like going to these events. The artists tend to be really genuine, nice people that you can just talk to on a one-to-one level. It's not like the kind of closeted acting people that kind of hide behind their autographs and kind of move on. With these people, you can talk to them about what they're interested in, and they'll tell you about it, and they'll advise you, and they'll give you advice. It's so cool, you know? Sure. So it's more, it's less like a going to a con and more going to like a more of an intimate gathering. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every single one I've been to has been way more like an intimate gathering. I mean, I'm going to GamesCon in Cologne in September, which is like the biggest one. Um, but I'm doing DevCon, which is like the developer side of it. And the developer side of it's a much more relaxed kind of thing compared to um, GamesCon, which is really kind of, you know, cosplay and craziness and queuing for hours. And it's going to be great because obviously, uh, because I'm going to DevCon, I'll be able to talk to the other developers and find out all the cool things they're working on. And, you know, I mean, obviously people can't talk about projects they've got under non-disclosure agreements and stuff, but you can still find out really cool things. And it's going to be real fun because I'm going to be there talking about my game and talking about new Unreal technology. They're going to be talking about new things. We're going to share ideas. And it's a very democratic way of doing things. Wow. Sounds like you, I mean, people don't realize developers, when they talk about game developers, they picture one type of person, some mm. nerd sitting behind a computer. Oh, yeah. But there's so many different kinds of people out there. It's crazy. I mean, it's like anything else, you know, you've got people who are kind of, you've got people literally that are like that and you see that all the time, but then you've got kind of these crazy creative people and you've got these really interesting people out there. And it's just so nice being able to talk to all the different kinds of people and just pick their brains and see what they're doing. So tell me more about your game. I mean, where are you with it? How is it going? It's going It's going pretty well. There were some problems with the wiki. Now, the idea of the wiki is, as I've said before, 1936 Scotland, you're an assistant lighthouse keeper. You've been sent to this island to go and work under this senior lighthouse keeper, a guy called Captain Malin. Now, if you've seen any of the pictures of the actual game itself, um, what you'll notice um, is with the characters, I haven't used 3D. I use 3D for everything, really realistic 3D wherever possible. 
But for the actual character interactions, if you're talking to someone, they're designed as an illustration. And my daughter um, did that because she's a professional illustrator. And that was a conscious decision because there's something going on in your head. Let's just leave it there. So everyone's like an illustration. But I liked that because it means that by having these kind of static illustrations rather than fully facially animated characters, it's very much pulling you out of what you're doing and you're forced to concentrate on the story. Now, some of the problems I've had recently have been very, very kind of technical based because what I'm doing, I've got to make sure to run on a home computer. That's the hard bit. Anyone can make a game work on, you know, a heavy duty workstation like the one I use. But getting it to work on someone's home computer, whether using a 1060, a 1080, or a 2050, or whatever, that's where the problems come in. And so a lot of what I've done recently has had to be really, really boring to try and make things work. But on top, I mean, recently I've been able to add a lot more features in that I wasn't expecting to be able to add. So, for example, now you can go to the lighthouse kitchen and cook and make meals which I think is great. You know, it's silly, but it's fun. Um, you can repair things, which you couldn't do before. You can clean the floors, you can clean the windows, you can do all these meaningless tasks, just as a way of kind of building up the character in the game. Plus, of course, you've got this kind of underlying story that's going all the way through it. Because the game takes place over two weeks. And so on day one, it's fairly quiet. Day two, you know, day one, two are basically your tutorial days where you're learning the ropes. Day three, you can continue just being a lighthouse keeper. Just get on with your job. Make sure the light's lit, mop the floors, all that. And you can do that all the way to day 10. And at the end of day 10, you'll go, well, I became a lighthouse keeper. That's great. Or by day three, you can start exploring and finding out what's going on underneath the surface, following the clues, finding the hidden things, looking for the weird esoteric things, getting into danger. And that's when the fun happens, you know. But if you don't, the world goes on without you. It doesn't matter. You can just do it any way you want. If you want to stay in bed for the whole 10 days and never do a shred of work, there's nothing stopping you. The cap what will happen, the captain's going to come in and ask you if you're ill. But you know, if you want you can play the game your way. And that's what I like about this whole funk, this whole idea. You know, you can play it as a lighthouse keeper, you can play it as a detective looking into what's going on. You can just explore. You can bird watch. I've built in a bird watching system. You know, this is this is the most kind of ASD thing I could possibly think of. But you know, you go up to the top of the lighthouse <laughs> with binoculars and just look for birds. And I had a great time doing that. And then I, I kind of expanded that now. So I've got a new system coming in where you're going to be able to go and like pick up things that float in on the sea and put them on your shelves and stuff, which I think is going to be great fun. Just adding collections to it. It's it's just silly, fun, enjoyable, and just. <laughs> When I saw they were when they were making um, that game No Man's Sky, oh. I didn't understand at first what they were doing. You know, a lot of us were very disappointed by what they did, and then I realised that they were using it to build on and build on and build on and build on and build on. And I think that's such a good idea. I really do. You know, being able to just give more and more and more without charging extra, which is the important thing. I think people should only ever have to buy something once. I can tell you. I mean, I. There are games that I love, and then there are games that will just capture me, and I'll just keep playing forever. I mean, I just recently got a game called Strange Horror Culture, which is basically Ooh. you open, you you take over this horror culture shop, and you're selling all these strange plants that have different remedies for different things. But yeah. there's a story that goes on beyond that. But the premise of the thing is, 
You have no idea what these plants are. You have a book they give you and you have to identify them. You have people coming in that are asking for plants. So you got to go through this book. And then each day you get a different clue and some paper and some hints and stuff. And then you explore. You got to figure out where on the map to go to find these clues to get new plants and new cards added to your system. That's a good idea, you see. It's not holding your hand. It's saying you can do this, and then you go off and you do the work. And I think that's a brilliant idea. I mean, I never thought I'd get hooked on the game, and then it just draws you in, and you, you, you keep playing, and you just fall in love with the game. I mean, it's simple 2D graphics. It's not 3D, yeah. but they the don't graphics itself are amazing. <laughs> Yeah, it, as long as it's holding you and as long as it's keeping your imagination, it's like a book. You know, a book doesn't need an illustration on every page to be good. It just yeah. needs to be able to hold you in the story. And I think that's the key point. Again, that's why I, that's one of the reasons I moved away from having like really realistic characters in the game, because I don't want that. Partly, I'm also very, very bad at, you know, character design. I didn't want to have to hire someone else. But also because, you know, static means the story is more in your head. And it's much more fun to do that way. It uses your imagination. Exactly. I mean, exactly. there are a lot of games that use the static where you have the little score in the top and the pictures, the portrait of the person, and then the decisions you make. Absolutely. You know, and I think it's something, I think that's such a good idea for games. I mean, obviously, it's not what everyone likes. You know, a lot of people yeah. just like a more simple game, but who cares? I'm making I a mean, game that I like. I mean, it's not an Ubisoft game where you like um, Odyssey or anything like that, but <laughs> small games, indie games, I, I love giving the, I love giving the attention to the indie game because in, in one little indie game could blow up and become the biggest hot game you'll find. Oh, yeah, these like indie Valve. developers are amazing what they come up with. Absolutely, because... I mean, some of these indie guys are coming up with such amazing ideas all the time. And again, I think a lot of that is to do with, you know, indie developers are able to share their ideas and talk to other people. They're not in the same in the same way that people in big companies can't. You can't be at Ubisoft and say, oh, I'm going off to go and have lunch with my friend at Rockstar and talk about ideas. They'd say, no, you can't. Whereas, you know, as an indie developer, you can talk to another indie developer and share ideas, talk to each other on Twitter. You don't have a single problem about it, you know, and that's the good thing. Yeah, I mean, I fell in love with a game called Umu, U-M-O-U-O, I think. And it's mm -hmm. the most simplistic indie game. And it's just beautiful graphics, simplistic, three-dimensional, story-driven. But you don't it. Not has like this. It doesn't have this amazing um, Ubisoft graphics, but it's it's just the story alone and just the simplistic graphics to everything in the game that just makes it feel euphoric. Oh, yeah, I can believe it. I mean, you can get away with so much with so little, and that's the whole point, you know. It's all about storytelling. And again, as I say, I'm very lucky that I've got um, Amanda developing the story for me because. Her story is like a snake eating its tail over and over. It's a beautiful tale. And not what Adam came up with, which I love. So that works doubly for me. I think a lot of people are going to be very surprised by the time it gets to the end of the game. Yeah, I mean, I love games where you get to the end and it's like, oh, no, it's not the end. There's more <laughs> to it. And all of a sudden it I just takes that. this whole twist and brings you back around. They're like, oh, you missed something here. Oh, yeah. Or even I games with so. multiple endings. 
Oh, yeah. I love that. I love games with multiple endings. I love games with weird twists. And I love games where the chronology gets weird. So suddenly, you know, you're not where you think you are in the game at all. Are you at the end? No. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I mean, I've seen people play Call of Cthulhu, and I try to get into that. And this is, it's, I mean, it's got that detective feel to it. And then it's just, you really get yeah. into horror and... I know what you mean. Frogwares game, it looked good, but it wasn't what I wanted. It was it was too I don't know, it followed a lot of rules that I didn't want to follow. Um it's not what I want. I want if I was playing a Cthulhu game like that, I wouldn't want it that way. I'd want exploration. I'd want to not be stuck on a mission track, if you know what I mean. I'd like to be finding my own missions rather than being given things and spoon fed and then told I've got to shoot some things and then given another mission. I don't like that kind of structure. So you, you're more doing on your own instead of this is your I main mission so, yeah. and then you have five If you missions. miss a clue, that's your problem, you know? You can always try it again. That's how I mean, it should like work. Game, yeah, I like games where, where you don't have to worry about if you miss something, you don't have, it's not holding you there. Exactly. Because then you're not spending hours trying to figure out what the hell you're missing frustration and, and a lot of times these game companies will make it so simplistic or small mm. it's like you don't see it and it's right in front of you and you'll never find it yeah sierra was sierra was an absolute beast for that with like things like the little mouse hole puzzles and stuff in the old mm. king's quest games yeah i know exactly what you're talking about because that no one wants that no one wants to play a game and suddenly hit a wall where you can't go any further and you don't know why you know, nuts to that. Go to bed, wake up the next day, do something else. Much more fun. I mean, it's like, yeah, you got to ask this guy so and so. You got to ask this guy over and over and over and over until he asks, you get them to ask you a certain question. It's like, why should I have to talk to him five times just to get different yeah. answers? Can't I just yeah. get that, get him to tell me the whole story within one chat? Exactly. There's no reason why that shouldn't be the case. And that's what that's that's one of the things that I like getting into with this, you know. As I've said, if you want to just run through the game end to end and spend all your time in game, in bed, sorry, and then wake up on the tenth day and just go, ha, I'm finished. <laughs> There's nothing stopping you. I don't see it being a problem. But if you want to actually play the game, have fun, do puzzles, do things and find stuff, do that. I think that you should be allowed to play a game the way you want to. It should be like Lego, you know? You've got a whole big world out there that you should explore and have fun with. Lego, Minecraft. Exactly. Exactly. Mojang was smart. They made an open world where you do what you want, when you want it. And people just got smart and created mods for it and made it even better. Exactly. I mean, I was, I think my user account's 2093 or something. I got in on a really, really early on the Minecraft beta and uh, I had no regrets. That was an excellent people design work. And again, an example of being able to do whatever you want. A yeah. genius plan. Because if you let people do what they want, they enjoy themselves. Sandbox games, I think, are where, where gaming is going to come to. I think so. Which is, again, what they're kind of basing this metaverse idea on, I think. I mean, you look at games like um, Planet Zoo, where you you design your own zoo. I guarantee you, more and more people are going to play the, the sandbox part of it, where you oh, have yeah. unlimited money, unlimited this, and everything yeah, else. So you don't have dreams. to worry about money and this. You have everything at your disposal. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what it's about. It's making what it's living your fantasy. It should be about living your fantasy. And I mean, not everyone's going to have a fantasy about being a scruffy lighthouse keeper in 1936. But you know what? The ones that do, I, I want them to have the fantasy that they were hoping for. So that's the whole <laughs> point of it. Anyways, let's get into some of the real gist of the questions here. Where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in the northeast of England in a place called Easington Colliery. Um, it's uh, what's known as a colliery town, a coal mining place. Um, it was an interesting place to grow up. Not the kind of place that a southern boy like me should probably end up in. But, uh, yeah, that's where I grew up. Right. What, motiv- All right. what motivates you, inspires you, and drives you? Good question. That's changed over the years. Nowadays, I think it's testing my own boundaries to see if I can do it. You know, it's all about I've reached this age. I want to know that I can I can do things that I've never done before. I want to create. It's all about David Lynch calls it the art life. He says it's all about coffee, art, cigarettes. Um, I don't smoke, but it's definitely about, you know, art and coffee. Um, Game development, in my opinion, is an art and I love doing it. Um, it's what wakes me up and, you know, gives me that kick. I just love the creative kind of feel of doing art. All right. What's the best compliment you've ever gotten? My wife told me I've got nice eyes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What's your biggest failure and what did you learn from that experience? Ooh, goodness me. My biggest failure. Uh, To be fair, I've had a few. Let me have a think for a second. Ah, my biggest failure in life probably was um, my wife and I separated in about 2001 and it was because I wasn't attentive enough as a husband. We got back together again afterwards and I think what I learned was that, you know, there's more to life than what's inside my own head. I learned that, you know, other people are important and I had to learn to try and understand other people. And I think that was my biggest failure and the biggest learning process I had. And then my um, youngest son came along and it was just like an eye opener to me. And that made me a better person. All right. Tell me about three influential people in your life and how they impacted you. Three influential people in my life. Okay, then. Um, Right. So one influence to me definitely is a comedian, very British comedian called Stuart Lee. Um, I'd highly recommend having a look for Stuart Lee. He's voted kind of Britain's greatest comedian at this point. He really is a genius of comic timing, and I love him. His humour is incredible. Um, so he's a definite influence on me. Aside from that, influence-wise, that's a very, very tricky one. Uh, hmm. Well, I'd say H.P. Lovecraft's writing has been an influence on me, not the person, but the writing, because of his style of writing. I've been fascinated by how he's able to capture what he does in the words he uses. So he's definitely my second influence. And my third influence is... Hmm, probably musically. And... So many musicians that I absolutely love. But I don't know, it's probably Rage Against the Machine. I've always loved Rage Against the Machine since they first came out. They've always been a massive um, inspiration to me. Oh, and um, David Robin, the guy who made um, Zoo, 
that game you were talking about. He's the guy who made Elite, and uh, mm. yeah, him, absolute genius. All right. What makes you feel inspired or like your best self? Seeing the artwork that other people do, seeing art by independent artists, new artists and young artists, and seeing independent video games by new artists. Um, I don't feel threatened by seeing other people's work. I love to see it because it inspires me constantly. But yeah, that definitely. All right. Finish the sentence. I'm at my best when? I'm doing art. All right. If you can turn back time and talk to your 18-year-old self, what would you tell him about where you are now? Nothing. Nothing at all, because the last thing I'd want to do is change a thing. I've gone through bad patches. I've gone through great patches. And one of the biggest fears I'd ever have is to go back in time and change a single thing. All right. If you can have a billboard with anything on it, what would you put and why? <laughs> oh, my goodness me. Uh, don't vote for Boris Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What do you think the world would le- would? Uh, what do you think the world would look like in five years? It'll look similar to what it is now, but I think there'll be a lot more. There'll be a lot more prevalence prevalence of um, artificial intelligence. People won't realize it. Um, it's not real artificial intelligence. It's like um, machine learning. There'll be a lot more of it, though. Um, certainly in articles, uh, video games, and media. Just people won't see it as much. There's going to be a lot more invisible technology. You know, I'm not talking kind of tin hats here. I'm talking things we don't see that are making things behind the scenes. So I think that's going to be the biggest change for us. This thing they call the metaverse is really just a collection of software. And I think that's kind of where it's going to be going. All right. What was your favorite subject in school? Art. I can see that in you. (laughs) Are you introverted or extroverted? Both. All right. If you could be remembered for one thing, what would it be and why? Being a good person, I think. Yeah. All right. Now we get to the really fun questions. What is your favorite word? (laughs) Flangification. What is your least favorite word? Failure, probably. All right. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, and emotionally? Music. What turns you off? Silence. What is your favorite cuss word? Oh, the shit word. (laughs) All right. What sound or noise do you love? What sound or noise do I love? Um... My wife's laugh. She's got an incredible laugh. What sound or noise do you hate? Ooh. Anything loud. Anything loud and surprising. I'm not good with that at all. All right. What is your favorite color? Blue. What is your least favorite color? I don't have one. Um, I'm colorblind, so they all look pretty cool. All right. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I'd have liked to have been an architect. What profession would you not like to do? 
school teacher. All right. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Uh, there's cold beer in the fridge. <laughs> when you arrive at heaven, who would you like to meet? Ooh. My, my old dog, Sashmo. Aww. What books do you recommend my audience read? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, one second, I'll make sure I've got the name right. Got to make sure I get this right. Uh, the House on the Borderland by William Hope Hodgson. No, okay. which you can get for about 99 cents on Amazon, I think. All right. And finally, where can people find more about you and the wiki? www.thewiki.com. T H E W I C K I E dot com, which hopefully should be working soon because the website went down. Yeah, I went. Yeah, I went there for I think through Facebook, and it said that was oh, down. It it's for sale now. That's good. Yeah, uh, they're not doing a good job on this at all. Yeah, I'll have to get back on at the beginning. And that's it, everyone. That is Chris Robinson, game developer, father, ADHDer, married to <laughs> a woman with. ASD and three kids who have ASD as well. Thanks, Chris, yeah, for coming on the show. Absolute pleasure, and thank you very much for inviting me. Not a problem. See you in the next one, everyone. things used to be I'm no big fan of now I must have some sweeter memories somewhere in the cloud to be gonna miss all you had consigned to the dustbins of history like opinions from your dead Talk to the freaks. You can talk to just about anybody you happen to meet.